Hello folks, big warm welcomes on a cold day to you kind guys, Patreon supporters of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where it's my pleasure to be bringing you this month's exclusive bonus episode number 26. I'm Paul, the creator, host and voice of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. For all of you guys, the returning lineup and brand new friends to the show, get my utmost thanks for your support. It means the absolute world to me and I love being able to bring you a bit of a bonus each month just to say thanks. It's ace as ever having you joining me today as it always is, and I hope that as the episode finds you, that you're all good and well as you listen in. So for those new supporters of the show, hopefully as you hear this, I've shouted you out on the regular enthusiast episodes. If not, I will get to you, don't fret. And this may be your first venture into a bonus case, then I have to explain Each monthly bonus episode is never as long as the regular show. Well, because it's a bonus, of course. But I don't just open Wikipedia and sit there reading with my thumb up my arse. I do get my head into the books for these. If you guys are kind enough to support, then I like to feel that I've tried my best to deliver. So I don't skim, and each episode is as long as it needs to be. And I strive as ever to get as much fact and detail into each tale as I can. You'll also find no adverts, no live reads of products or promo trailers for other podcasts. Straight away, it's me off with the shit that I talk and we just hit the ground running with the chosen case of the month. So for the first three episodes of the fifth series, we've been in Scotland. The first two concerning the crimes of James Dunleavy and the body on the hill that I'm not even going to try to say because apparently I always pronounce it wrong. And the third episode of the series has focused solely upon some of the other past patients at Carstairs, the state hospital. As I was writing that episode, I was torn between a few tales for entry, and originally the episode was going to feature three tales that I'd written and researched, but I cut it down to two which turned out to be plenty, and I researched and added another to the remaining tale to create this month's bonus Patreon episode, whilst you're in Rome and all that. So, we're once again at the State Hospital for this month's bonus episode, and the accounts of two of its former notorious patients, a pair of savage killers whose stories will horrify and revile you, I'm in no doubt. Both accounts take place in the Scottish city of Dundee, and although they're unconnected and take place some six years apart, there is only half a mile that separates each case. The episode this month contains descriptions of crimes and events involving children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please, as always, folks, use your discretion whilst you're listening. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for this month's bonus episode. We meet two more from behind Carstairs' doors. For the first account of the bonus episode, we shall meet an individual whose only known crime, I stress known, seemed as pointless as it was opportunistic, and undoubtedly a person, if you can call him that, who was a psychopathic, calculating and predatory offender who undoubtedly had the propensity to kill again and again. On the afternoon of Tuesday the 24th of September 1968, 12-year-old Hazel Finn moved to the exit of her school bus, turned to wave goodbye to the school friend that she'd been sitting next to on the journey, then was out onto the pavement and began to walk the few hundred yards from her stop 
to her home in Dundee's Craigmount Avenue. As the bus passed her again, headed to the next stop, Hazel laughed and waved once more to her friend, who was by now pulling faces to her from the backseat window, then carried on walking towards her home as the bus faded into the distance. Now everyone who's gotten off a school bus has done that, haven't they, I'm sure? Pulled faces at your friends, or you deck the V's to them, that kind of thing. But this innocent gesture was to haunt Hazel's friend for a long time afterwards because it was the last time that Hazel was seen alive by anyone who knew her. She never made it home on that short walk from the bus stop to her house. In fact, it was to be more than another full day before Hazel was seen again, and by that time, she was long dead. School blazer and uniform, which were usually kept so lovingly pristine, had been removed from her, along with the rest of her clothing, and her body had been crudely buried underneath a mound of bonfire remains, soot and assorted debris in a dank cellar below a row of nearby housing. There was little doubt in how the poor girl had met her death, because a thick length of rope was pulled and secured tightly around her throat. Similar lengths of the same rope had been used to tightly bind her hands and feet. Hazel had been a pupil at St John's Roman Catholic School in Dundee, a location we've been to before here on the show, and actually as part of the Series 3 Carstairs trilogy, as it was the location of the brutal murder of teacher Nanette Hansen by deranged killer Robert Moan, the crime which ultimately sent him to Carstairs. And as you may know, that move was to go spectacularly tits up some time later, As I said, if it's not one that you're familiar with, head to the regular show back catalogue and check out the Scottish Chain of Ten two-part episode from Series 3 for Moan's story. It's quite a remarkable tale. And it isn't just with this that this story's intertwine either, really. Hazel was murdered just ten months after Moan had committed murder after holding a classroom full of female students hostage. And shortly afterwards... Both Robert Moan and Hazel's killer would not long afterwards end up being friends and fellow patients at the state hospital. When Hazel had failed to arrive home from school on that late September afternoon, after some time had passed, her parents Mary and John went looking around the area to try and find their eldest daughter, thinking perhaps she'd merely stopped off at a friend's house and lost all track of time or was out playing with some school pals but they found that no one had seen Hazel. By 7pm, still with no clue as to her whereabouts, police were alerted. Taken seriously, it was only a short time afterwards that a full-scale search for the missing schoolgirl was launched, spearheaded by Chief Constable John Little, his first operation in command of the Dundee Force, having only arrived from Glasgow the previous day. A 70-strong team of police officers complete with tracker dogs, began a thorough search of all park and open scrubland in the immediate areas, before after darkness had fallen, moving on to searching buildings and condemned properties by torchlight. Posters of the missing girl were hurriedly made up and rushed out to display, and loudspeaker appeals were broadcast amongst the search and house-to-house inquiries. But 24 hours after they'd begun, there was still no sign of Hazel. 
And then a switchboard operator at police headquarters took a telephone call from a man who claimed he had an urgent message to pass on to detectives. The caller said he was an acquaintance of a 23-year-old local man named Carl Anderson Tonner, and that only minutes before he had telephoned, Tonner had casually told him that the girl that by that time half of Dundee was searching for was in the cellar below Tonner's house, number 4 Lawn Street. Detectives rushed around to the address given by the caller, which was only a short distance from where Hazel had last been seen as she got off the school bus, and knocked on the door for it to be answered by Tonner. Given their reasons as to why they were there, Tonner offered no objection when detectives demanded to look in the cellar, and almost immediately they found the pathetic, heartbreaking sight of Hazel's body. Tonner was immediately arrested and a search of the possessions he had on his person revealed the schoolgirl's watch and the remainder of the bag of sweets she'd bought earlier that morning on her way to school. At police headquarters, Tonner recounted how he'd been tinkering with a motorcycle in the back garden of his Lawn Street home when he'd spotted Hazel, who'd been taking a shortcut to her own home along a cinder path that Tonner's garden backed onto. He claimed that he had an irresistible urge to seize Hazel and force her into the cellar beneath the house, saying calmly, The girl was passing through the close. I took her to the washhouse converted into a workshop. I was going to have intercourse, but when I got her there I didn't feel like it, so I killed her with a rope and covered her up. Now by all accounts that I found through research, Tonner was so detached about describing such a senseless, horrific crime that it was almost as though he was describing a change in the weather. He was totally non-fussed about what he'd done, freely admitting it. When the time came for Tonner to appear at the High Court in Edinburgh on the 29th of November 1968 to face trial over the murder of Hazel Finn, two psychiatrists testified that although he was sane and was fit to plead at court, he suffered from a personality disorder which manifested itself in the form of sexual abnormality. This disorder severely diminished his responsibility for his behaviour and because of his continuing dangerous and violent criminal predispositions, it was necessary for Tonner to receive medical treatment but under the strictest secure conditions. As a result of this medical advice, the court accepted Tonner's guilty plea to culpable homicide and presiding judge Lord Grant ordered that the emotionless killer should be taken to the state hospital to be detained without limit of time. Now most often when this is the disposal of the court, the person who's been incarcerated under the Mental Health Act, that's them, you don't tend to hear too much more about them, give or take a few newspaper headlines. And of course, this really depends upon the gravity of the crime and whether they're deemed so monstrous that sadly they will sell newspapers. If you had to name past Broadmoor residents, for example, the chances are that you'd come out with Cray, Sutcliffe, only the kind of names that stay in the newspapers really. As patients of a secure hospital, these people are afforded the privacy and rights of a hospital patient, and they're secured away, soon to be forgotten by the general public. Carl Tonner was to make the headlines again, albeit many years later. A former member of Carstairs staff, speaking to a Sunday newspaper in the late 1990s, 
revealed that the deeply disturbed Tonner had spent the majority of his hospital time responding to women's lonely hearts advertisements through the columns in a publication known as Friendship Books. He'd built up quite a sizable, astonishing list of female contacts that he'd been corresponding with over the years, not just within the confines of the United Kingdom, but countries all across the world, ranging from the USA to Japan. Tonner had even managed to persuade a large selection of these single women, those who were single mothers, to send him photographs of their children, which he had amassed more than a hundred pictures of, and that plastered the walls of his room in the state hospital. Some of the children were as young as three years old. The former staff member later told how out of the hundreds of letters that paedophile Tonner had received, he used a sickening criteria to sort through them, claiming, He narrowed down all the letters he received to what he deemed were the most vulnerable females, of course, on the provision that they had children. They'll be horrified to learn that he's a child killer who only wanted pictures of their children for his own gratification. In his letters out to these lonely hearts, at first Tonner did not reveal that he was a patient in the state hospital. He claimed that he worked as a printer and just gave the street address that the hospital is located at, Lampitts Road, Carstairs, Lanarkshire, for years successfully getting letters this way. Staff opened a parcel that he was sending out to one such acquaintance, only to discover that he was actually dispatching hundreds of fictitious business cards that he'd run off in the hospital print shop facility, offering a pen pal service. One lonely, naive woman that Tonner corresponded with for six years, Beryl Crofts, even moved from her home in the south of England up to Dundee, just to be nearer to him. He'd initially used this ruse of him being a printer to woo Beryl, only later confessing to being a patient at the state hospital who'd been institutionalised due to nervous exhaustion. They even became engaged, but their relationship quickly ended after she discovered the true nature of Tonner's horrific crime and his background following a newspaper expose in 1999. She said later, He never wrote me weird letters, he just seemed normal. When I first wrote to him, I didn't even know what the state hospital was. He said he was in hospital because of a nervous problem. Then a friend of mine in Glasgow told me it was a hospital for the criminally insane. And I thought, oh my God, I've stopped writing to him now. This has put me off pen pals. She was particularly repelled because over the years that they'd had contact, she'd sent Tonner numerous photographs of her children and even her grandchildren, who were aged between six years old down to as young as 18 months. Can you imagine something such as that? Actually, please don't. That must be mortifying. It must make you sick to your stomach to think about such a thing, something that you've done in all innocence, naive or not, sent to someone of such a disposition. And it wasn't just this unfortunate woman taken in by him, by a long shot. Several other female pen friends had also ceased contact with Tonner after being similarly shocked to learn of his true nature and his horrific crime years before. One woman, a 43-year-old from Cheltenham, Anne-Marie Clifford, 
had written to Tonna for 17 years, sending him countless letters and photographs of her daughter all through her life and school years up until she was aged 15, having no real idea of Tonna's background, thinking he was in hospital with a nervous disorder. For 17 years, yeah. Anna had written so constantly to him, she was even contacted by officials from Carstairs and asked to visit Tonna, with them offering to pay half of her rail fare from Cheltenham in what seemed to be an inroad to preparing Tonna for an eventual release, although Anna never went. There was even a suggestion from North Lanarkshire Social Work Department of a possible hospital transfer for him to a hospital in England, all so Tonna could be near to her. But all of this ceased in 1999, when Anna stumbled across the newspaper expose that had mentioned Tonna, his crime, and his letter-writing pastime. Prior to this, Tonna had been bombarding her with telephone calls requesting her to come and visit him, and to bring her daughter also. Needless to say, she soon had a changed telephone number and saved herself an absolute fortune in stamps and stationery, left petrified that if Tonna was ever released, he would immediately come looking for her and her 15-year-old daughter, even to the point where Anna considered moving house. Now this expose didn't put Tonner off because indeed he believed his best chance for release would be by proving to doctors that he was in a stable relationship. To get around the fact he'd been exposed as a murdering paedophile in a newspaper, Sly Tonner began using his middle name of Anderson instead of his memorable surname. Just a year after his first fiancé had ended their engagement and ceased all contact with him, by the year 2000, Carl Anderson had already lined up another female pen pal that he had designs on marrying, another vulnerable woman, this time a lonely 58-year-old London grandmother named Joan Cook. Joan had begun corresponding with Tonner only some months before, and was soon being wooed by a steady stream of affectionate gushing letters from him, followed by nightly telephone calls where Tonner would express his love for her. She too was unaware of the precise reason he was in Carstairs and was completely swept off her feet by him, agreeing to marry him in hospital. It was only in the weeks leading up to their marriage and after Tonner had been persuaded by Carstairs' authority to inform her of the exact reason that he was in the state hospital that Joan learned of the full horrific story and like her predecessor, immediately broke off the engagement. She said at the time, I screamed when I learned the whole truth. I threw the engagement ring across the room. I was about to marry a sick killer who'd killed a little girl who was the same age as my own grandchildren. It makes me sick to my stomach. Joan had been that taken in by him and that swept off her feet by whatever crap he was sending her in letters that at one point in their courtship, if you can call it that because... They didn't really tend to get out or do much as a couple. She'd even petitioned former Prime Minister Tony Blair and even the Queen calling for Tonner to be freed. It wasn't the first time Tonner had attempted to secure his freedom either. After spending 31 years in the state hospital, in 1999 Tonner had embarked upon an audacious bid to secure his release from there. A fellow patient and convicted murderer named Noel Ruddle, who you never know, we might meet in a later episode, 
has successfully won his freedom after exploiting a loophole in the law, where he claimed that since doctors had confirmed that his personality disorder could not be cured, then he should be released, it being a pointless waste of a ward bed at the state hospital otherwise. Under European law, psychiatrists had no choice but to recommend his release if his condition was classed as untreatable. And however worrying, but black and white as that logic sounds, it was successful and Ruddle was released. Within weeks of this decision, Tonner and two other patients, one another paedophile killer, the other a killer who'd stabbed a young mother to death and also attempted to entice away an eight-year-old girl, had lodged appeals of their own, they too claiming that they should be set free on the same grounds as Ruddle. But anticipating that floodgates could be opened for many similar appeals following the groundbreaking decision, Scottish Parliament had hurried through legislation to plug this loophole and passed by the Scottish Parliament on the 31st of August 1999. Section 1 of the Mental Health, Public Safety and Appeals Scotland Act 1999, entitled Continued Detention of Mentally Disordered Patients on Grounds of Public Safety, now stated... Where an appeal to the sheriff is made by a restricted patient who is subject to a restriction order, the sheriff shall refuse the appeal if satisfied that the patient is, at the time of the hearing of the appeal, suffering from a mental disorder, the effect of which is such that it is necessary, in order to protect the public from serious harm, that the patient continue to be detained in a hospital, whether for medical treatment or not. But despite this, the three appeals did go as far as the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London, the highest court of appeal in the UK, where a panel of five judges ultimately rejected each. It was a decision met with applause from the mother of the girl murdered by Tonner, Mary Finn, who demanded that he remained behind bars for the rest of his life, saying, There is obviously still something very seriously wrong with this man, they should have thrown away the key when they locked him up. Even after 31 years, there's never a day passes without me thinking about Hazel. It's a bit of sorrow that our family has had to live with, especially every birthday that passes and every Christmas. By that time, Mary had sadly lost two of her three daughters, her daughter Jacqueline also having died from a brain hemorrhage some years before. Mary had, following Hazel's murder, gone on to have twin sons with her husband John in 1971, Robert and John Jr., but for many years could not talk about the circumstances of Hazel's death. Her surviving daughter Leslie told the Scottish Daily Record in 1999, I was only seven when Hazel died, but I still remember the day she disappeared and how everybody was looking for her when she didn't come home. I now have an eight-year-old son myself, and I can appreciate the pain my mother has been through. She never told me what happened to Hazel, and I only found out from a close friend just a few years ago. I still don't want to know the horrific details of what she went through. I can perfectly understand why mum didn't want me to know. Tonner tried yet again for freedom in May 2006, after codified laws to the Mental Health Act gave patients the right to appeal to a tribunal against their detention in such secure conditions, for if successful at this, 
patients can be moved to less secure conditioned hospitals. But Tonner was once again denied declassification here, still deemed too disturbed, and it was to be his final attempt. On the morning of Wednesday the 31st of January 2007, Carl Anderson Tonner, then aged 61 and having spent almost four decades within the state hospital, failed to turn up for an appointment that he had with a hospital psychiatrist. Staff who went to his room found him dead on the floor. The cause of death was later established as the result of a massive coronary. Over the years, Tonner's weight had ballooned to more than 20 stone due to a combination of his lack of exercise, habitual love of junk food and his hospital medication regime. But few people, if any, mourned the monster of Lawn Street at his passing. In a ceremony lasting just 10 minutes, Tonner was buried in an unmarked grave near to the state hospital. Attending were just three council grave diggers and four members of hospital staff who watched as his outsized coffin was lowered into the ground. None of his female pen pals were in attendance, and certainly no one from his former home city of Dundee, where the name Carl Anderson Tonner was still spoken with resentment and disgust, almost 40 years after he took the life of a schoolgirl just innocently walking home, and admitted to doing it as nonchalantly as though he was discussing the weather. A friend of Hazel's family said at the time Tonner's death was reported. Good riddance. Nobody who knew Hazel has any forgiveness in their heart for this monster. Monster indeed. And the next person we shall meet isn't much better. Sometimes an act that one person can commit against another is so vile and appalling that you can't even begin to get your head around it. Bus driver Michael Wilkinson's capacity for evil, as shocking as it was, was even more so because it followed on just a couple of years from an act of self-sacrifice that touched and won the hearts of so many people that he was praised in the local, even the national newspapers. His story begins in late 1971, when aged 24, he separated from his wife Alice after he discovered she was involved in an affair with another man. Catching them in the act, he became involved in an altercation with both his wife and her lover, which turned very physical, and resulted in his wife and her lover leaving the home city of Dundee to begin a new life in England. Michael, meanwhile, remained behind to care for the couple's young children. Not long after she'd left, the couple's two-year-old son needed hospitalisation for a serious liver condition, which she at first appeared to make a hearty recovery from. However, sadly one evening at home, not long after being discharged, the boy Martin suffered a relapse. Before an ambulance could reach him, Martin had died in his father's arms. Now that's pretty heartbreaking and unforgettable, isn't it? Michael and his remaining daughter grieved and he felt the kind of pain that you don't ever wish to imagine. But six months later, he thought he'd found some kind of solace from this pain, a good deed to do. Having read newspaper reports about a critically ill 12-year-old Cambridge girl that desperately required a kidney transplant, touched deeply by her plight, 
Michael Wilkinson immediately decided to offer one of his own, depending upon him being a compatible donor. Now, in the event it ultimately transpired that he was unsuitable, but this didn't stop the local and national presses plastering him all over the pages for his well-meaning gesture, his altruism being applauded. A feel-good kind of story, you know? Michael told reporters at the time, I cannot sit by and do nothing while a little girl lies helpless. I know what the death of a child is all about. Remember those very words. Because less than three years after these were spoken, they came back to have a very chilling, sickening significance for all the wrong reasons. On the afternoon of Monday 17th of June 1974, Six-year-old Pauline McIver had failed to return home from school, causing her worried parents to go out around the area searching for her. Their inquiries eventually took them to a tenement flat in Gordy Place in Dundee's Dryburg Estate, which was the home of one of Pauline's close friends, a fellow pupil at her school, the eight-year-old daughter of Michael Wilkinson. His daughter has never been named for legal reasons. Alison McIver, a 26-year-old nurse at Nine Wells Hospital and mother of two other children, son Scott and daughter Karen, spoke to 27-year-old Michael, who immediately said that Pauline had accompanied his own daughter home from school earlier that afternoon and that she and his daughter had played happily together in the flat. He explained that he'd sent Pauline home at about 4.30pm, reminding her that it was almost tea time and her parents would be worried. Alison raced back downstairs to pass on this news to her husband, who was waiting outside in the family car. The couple departed at once, continuing the search, and retracing the likely route home that Pauline would have taken from the Wilkinson's flat. But by late that evening, with still no sign of Pauline, her distraught father, together with his brother, returned to Gordy Place to once again speak to Michael Wilkinson, by all accounts the last known person to have seen Pauline. Michael did express concern at the lack of developments, but could offer nothing further than he told Mrs McIver earlier. Pauline had played at the flat immediately after school, but he had sent her home at about 4.30pm. Unbelievably, it was only at 10.45pm the police were first contacted and alerted to the missing girl, and a full-scale search for missing Pauline was immediately launched, which just over 90 minutes later brought the most unimaginable tragic results. At 12.25, a uniformed police sergeant, Sergeant John Clarkson, was searching a bin alcove in the backyard behind the tenement block of Gordy Place, as the last place Pauline had been seen, the logical place to begin search and house-to-house inquiries from, discovered Pauline's body laid out between two broken, discarded sinks with little to no attempt whatsoever to conceal the body. The later post-mortem would reveal that little Pauline had been battered about the head before being viciously strangled. She had also been savagely sexually assaulted. Police were never to disclose the full catalogue of injuries Pauline had suffered, but they would say that the injuries indicated that 
she had been assaulted to an unnatural degree. You don't even want to imagine it, do you, bless her? Michael Wilkinson, of course, lived in Gordy Place, and as the last person to knowledge to have seen Pauline alive, he was taken to Dundee Police Headquarters. Over the course of the following 90 minutes, he made a total of three statements to police. The first two of these amounted to the same story he told Pauline's parents the previous day, and he categorically denied any knowledge of Pauline's death. But as he was about to finish his explanation of events for the third time in succession, his demeanour dramatically changed. When he was asked again about how he thought Pauline's body had come to be found so close to his home, Wilkinson began to sweat profusely, his head and his hands soon slick with perspiration. Leaning forward to the senior interviewing officer, Detective Sergeant David McNichol, in a trembling voice, Wilkinson said, I know I'm going to get the blame. Now let me think. I will have to tell someone anyway. Wait a minute. I think I must have killed her, but I can't remember doing it. I can't remember it all, but it was me that done it. Upon being charged with the murder of Pauline McIver, Wilkinson replied, I don't remember how I did it. I put her in a case and carried it downstairs and left her at the back. I went back to the house and washed her clothes in bleach, then threw them out the back. When Wilkinson came to stand trial at Dundee's High Court three months later, on Thursday the 26th of September 1974, Two other charges had appeared on the indictment alongside the murder charge he was facing. He was now also alleged to have punched Pauline on the face and body with his fists before strangling her to death and was alleged also to have indecently assaulted her before killing her. Allegations were also raised that in the months preceding Pauline's murder he'd behaved indecently towards a number of teenage girls two 12-year-olds on December the 24th, 1973, and a 13 and a 14-year-old on at least four occasions in his home between March the 1st and April the 30th, 1974. Wilkinson never disputed in court that he had killed Pauline, he admitted that, but submitted a plea of insanity at the time that he was not responsible for his actions. He admitted beating and strangling her, but he denied assaulting her sexually. In fact, he steadfastly denied all charges of indecency against him. Insanity was a defence that the Crown rejected, however, and the two-day trial began. And the prime witness in the case? Wilkinson's own eight-year-old daughter, the playmate of the murdered girl. The account was to prove unforgettable. Questioned gently by Advocate Deputy J.G. Milligan for the Crown, Wilkinson's daughter gave a harrowing account of the events of the fateful afternoon, the simple words of a child somehow underlining the horror of what her father, stood in the dock across from her, had admitted to to the jury of eight women and seven men. The girl said, Pauline came home with me that day after school. We were playing in my room. My daddy was in the living room and he gave me some money to buy sweets. Pauline said she would stay with my daddy, and I went to get some sweets for both of us. When she returned home with the sweets, 
The girl said she discovered Pauline and her father playing a game of cards in the living room. He had then taken her friend into one of the bedrooms and closed the door, and a short time later, she heard screams which she told the court. He closed the door and I heard screaming after that. It sounded as though Pauline was calling out to go home. Her father then came out of the room and behind him, the girl told the court that she could see Pauline lying on the bedroom floor. Her father told his daughter he had had to put his hand across Pauline's mouth. When Mr Milligan asked her to describe how Pauline appeared, was she awake or did she appear to be sleeping, the little girl told the court, she seemed to be dead. Imagine hearing a kid saying that, bloody hellfire. The girl continued on with further horror. She told the court. Daddy told me to get a skipping rope which was on the bed. He put it around Pauline's neck and pulled it tight. Before adding that she'd also witnessed him then punching Pauline in the head repeatedly. Continuing she said. Daddy got a big case and put Pauline in it. He took her down to the backs and I stayed in the house. He came back and began to wash the blood from the suitcase. He'd taken off her pants and socks, put them in a bucket and put something in the bucket. He seemed to be cleaning it. When Mr Milligan asked if her father had said anything more to her, the girl replied, Yes, if you tell anybody, I'll do the same to you. Now that account alone, the words of an eight-year-old girl describing so innocently what she'd witnessed is without doubt one of the most disturbing things that I've ever researched and written up in more than 120 episodes of doing this show. That is just horror beyond belief. I mean, can you even begin to get your head around, even begin to imagine that? You would never forget an account like that to your dying day, would you? Wilkinson himself, who displayed little emotion during the trial, only became agitated to any extent when the prosecution later referred to this threat to do the same thing to his daughter, on several occasions calling out loud, keep my daughter out of this. A 13-year-old girl, one of the girls that Wilkinson was accused of behaving indecently with, told the court that she often visited Wilkinson's house and had done so at 6pm on the evening of the murder. Asked if there was anything unusual about the defendant that evening, she told the court, When I went in, he was sweating, his face was sweating. I asked what was wrong with him, and he said something about acid in the drink. She had then heard a crying noise coming from a bedroom, and had left as it had frightened her. An hour later, she went back to find Wilkinson in the kitchen, drying his hands and singing. The girl noticed marks on his trousers that she at first thought was blood, but then considered it could just be tomato sauce. Dr Hector Fowley, a consultant psychiatrist, told the court that at first, on balance of probability, he'd believed Wilkinson would have been insane at the time he had murdered Pauline, but his opinion had been altered after hearing the testimony of Wilkinson's daughter. If her account was to be believed, and there was nothing to suggest it was made up, then Wilkinson would have been sane, but suffering from a degree of diminished responsibility at the time. 
Given an account of a session he'd had with Wilkinson while he was on remand, Dr Fowley told the court that Wilkinson had claimed he could not recollect killing Pauline, but described him as coming out of a blackout and finding himself kneeling over her body in a bedroom. He'd said, I sort of came to, and when I saw her, right away I thought I'd done it. He had admitted concealing Pauline under the bed, and then later, before moving the body to where it was found only a short time after that, washing Pauline's knickers, her socks, and even her body itself after seeing blood on them. Wilkinson then confessed to transporting and placing Pauline's body within the bin recess at the rear of the tenement block before returning to the flat where he watched the late comedian Harry Worth on a television show. He then went out to a local public house where he consumed three pints of beer before returning home. Wilkinson admitted lying to Pauline's parents on both occasions they'd visited the flat that day and at first to police concerning knowledge of the murder and her whereabouts, saying, By that time I was frantic because I thought that I'd killed her, though I didn't know how I'd killed her. Dr Fowley also advised the court that on various occasions some two years previously, following the breakdown of his marriage, he had treated Wilkinson in psychiatric units due to a personality disorder that was associated with Wilkinson's epilepsy, which he'd had since aged seven and was on medication for, but that he took infrequently. Following his first marriage, Wilkinson had shortly afterwards married an 18-year-old girl, although the marriage broke up after barely a month because the couple would frequently row about her seeing other men. He had been hospitalised for depression twice in 1972 and had also developed a peptic ulcer following this, which he ignored and wasn't helped by his heavy drinking. Psychiatrist Dr Arthur McCoad, who was called for the defence, told the court that out of two interviews he'd conducted with Wilkinson, he believed that at the time of the murder, Wilkinson was having a period of disordered consciousness that was exacerbated by his epilepsy. This did nothing to aid Wilkinson's plea of insanity at the time of the murder, which was unanimously rejected by the jury, but after a 30-minute deliberation, he was unanimously convicted of culpable homicide on the grounds of his diminished responsibility. They also convicted him, by a majority verdict, of the charges of indecency against the two 12-year-old girls, but on instruction from the bench, found him not guilty of the indecency charges against the 13 and the 14-year-old. Presiding Judge Lord Leachman sent Wilkinson immediately to the state hospital without limit of time, to which Wilkinson said nothing. He just turned from the jury and walked across the dock down to the cells beneath, impassive as he had been throughout most of the trial. More than 20 years later, he was back in court arguing for his release. As with Tonner, Wilkinson was jumping on the bandwagon with several others who were attempting to win release following previous groundbreaking legal decisions, and in 1997, the then 50-year-old child killer argued to the court that there were no grounds to keep him at Carstairs any further because sexual deviancies such as paedophilia were not mental disorders covered by the Mental Health Scotland Act, the law under which he'd been held for more than two decades.
A panel of five psychiatrists was consulted by the court, three of whom agreed that Wilkinson was suffering from a mental disorder, whilst the remaining two claimed that he wasn't. However, none of them disputed that he had the sexual deviancy paedophilia, and all were in agreement that there was a serious risk if he were released, he could once again commit grave offences against children. It was ultimately left to a bench of appeal court judges to rule that Wilkinson should remain incarcerated because it was decided he was not being held solely because he was a paedophile, but because of his psychopathic condition. Now many breathed a sigh of relief at this as a member of staff at the state hospital had publicly declared that nursing staff there were horrified at Wilkinson's possible release, branding him a dangerous psychopath, a typical child killer who was a model patient never causing problems, but never discussing his crime or expressing any remorse either. And quite rightly so that he wasn't released, because he'd indecently assaulted and murdered a little girl horrifically in front of his own daughter, and then even threatened her with the same. And by the way, judges, doctors, boffins, there is easily a cure for paedophiles, by the way, easily. It's one that I'm sure I don't really need to spell out to you, do I, guys? Wilkinson had been present at each of the hearings concerning his appeal, and as it was high profile at the time, the public were aware of when he would be brought from the state hospital for his court appearances, always escorted by three nursing staff from Carstairs. At one of these, a hearing at the Court of Session in Edinburgh on October 2nd, 1997, was attended by a man sat in the public gallery who had, shall we say, a considerable interest in the Wilkinson case. When the court rose for lunch, as Wilkinson was being escorted out of the court by nursing staff, the man sprang up as if from nowhere and attacked him, punching him about the face and body, knocking Wilkinson first backwards so his head struck the wall and then to the floor. As nursing staff dragged Wilkinson away, bruised and with a minor cut, his assailant was arrested by police. The attacker was 28-year-old warehouse worker Scott McIver of 9 Balunny Street, Dundee, Pauline's younger brother. He'd waited more than 20 years to do that, and that was surely the minimal of what he wanted to do to Wilkinson. Charged with assault, when Scott appeared at Edinburgh Sheriff Court on the 6th of November to plead guilty, the court heard that when Wilkinson had appeared at the hearing to show no remorse whatsoever for the culpable homicide of Pauline years before, Scott's anger had got the better of him. Defence agent Mike McGinley told the court that Scott had been haunted for more than 20 years by his savage killing. It had a very traumatic effect on himself and his family. Scarcely a day goes past that he doesn't think about his sister's fate, he said. Scott escaped with leniency from Sheriff Elizabeth Jarvie, who told him, These were wholly exceptional circumstances, and I am prepared to admonish you. Wilkinson, meanwhile, what of him? In 2005, it was reported that after 31 years at the state hospital, he'd been secretly moved to a low-security psychiatric facility, Ailsa Hospital, in Ayr. 
A spokesperson from Ailsa told the press that Wilkinson's transfer had been authorised following doctors at Carstairs having decided that the years of treatment Wilkinson had undergone had gradually lessened the mental illness he had, ergo the threat that he posed, particularly to children. Now, being low security, I mean, there was still security, it just wasn't on the scale of Carstairs. This move had caused outrage amongst worried locals, frightened that a monster such as Wilkinson could easily escape and kill again. A local mother was quoted as saying, We've been told that there's no threat from the patients, but having an appalling child murderer right on your doorstep is very frightening indeed. People who do these acts should never be allowed out. It's not fair. They're even being housed near a school. Now that was 15 years ago now, and I was unable to find out through research if today Michael Wilkinson is still a patient within any form of psychiatric facility, whether he's even still alive today. If he is still alive, he would be 73 years old and have spent more than half his life in a secure hospital. But, undoubtedly for such a foul crime, the if not best place for him, then definitely the most suitable one. But, the very real possibility exists that yes, he is still alive, and is today a free man, even in his advanced years, no longer considered a danger to the public after spending more than three decades in the state hospital. I don't think that bears thinking about, do you? I think this is one of the most horrendous cases ever featured here on the show and there are a number of reasons why I do. To go from being so selfless that you offer a kidney, which is a serious life-threatening operation, in a random act of kindness, to brutally sexually assaulting and beating a six-year-old girl in an opportunistic attack, then getting your own daughter to pass you the ligature that you use to strangle her best friend in full view of her, and then threaten her with the same if she told anyone. What on earth do you call that if it's not pure, unbridled evil? And to display no emotion about it, even if Wilkinson claimed he could not remember the actual act of killing, yet he could describe washing the clothes and body, putting Pauline in the suitcase, dumping her in a bin alcove, where are the tears and regrets about that? Absolute monster, mentally ill or not, I think that's just pure psychopathic carnage. Tonner was the same, a remorseless psychopath who in his own words abducted a young girl to rape, immediately changing his mind about doing so, so he strangled her, but made no effort to hide Hazel's body, and even admitted to an acquaintance hours later that she was in his cellar, totally having no regard whatsoever of the gravity of what he'd done. Of course, by admitting this, it was only a matter of time before he was caught, and he would have faced life anyway thankfully not being able to kill again. But once his carnage enough, and his behaviour during his years at the state hospital, his countless letters out to lonely women, specifically ones with children and grandchildren, predatory is the word that sprung to my mind there, and the air is that much cleaner now that such a beast is dead. So two more tales of horror from the state hospital here, aren't they? And these are just a couple of names from there whose tales that I picked out to recount. There are several others, but those are tales for another time. 
I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts concerning the tales of Carl Tonner and Michael Wilkinson, so drop me a line, let me know what you think. And please, guys, over all the horror that we've heard here today, above all of that, please remember Hazel and Pauline first and foremost. The two girls who never made it home from school. I thank you very much for joining me for the episode today, which I hope, although it was disturbing, that you found interesting and informative. And thanks very much for your continuing support, folks. You keep the show going, you really, really do. I'm back with Series 5 of the regular show now underway each week. And of course, you can catch me next month for another bonus Patreon supporter episode, bonus episode number 27. I look forward to you joining me for it. Until we next speak, I've been, I still am, and I hope that I still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you and yours all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Cheers guys, take care, and goodbye for now.